0: My name is Madeline. I'm a medical student and host of the Voices of Aging podcast out of the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. This week is Careers in Aging Week. For the occasion, we have a week's worth of episodes lined up from a variety of folks involved in aging work. Make sure to tune in every day this week to learn all you can about working in aging.
1: Welcome to Voices of Aging, where you learn more about aging through experts. We are ASIC, the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. Every episode, we invite people working in a variety of different fields related to aging and hear their stories. Tune in. Either you're considering a career in aging, or want to learn more about aging fields, or simply want to listen to a stimulating conversation, you will find something you like. Find Voices of Aging on the iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
0: This is Madeline with the Voices of Aging podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Jane Peterson. Dr. Peterson is a geriatrician and has specific interests in quality improvement, safety, and policy related to the support of aging individuals. Hi, Dr. Peterson. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Madeline. I am happy to be part of your podcast. Thank you. I'm wondering if you could start by introducing yourself to our audience. Tell us about what you do, um, what you're maybe currently working on as it pertains to aging. Certainly. Uh, My name is Jane Peterson and I am, as Madeline said, a
2: geriatrician. I currently work clinically with an organization called Genevieve, which serves uh, patients really throughout the metro area and into the outstate, really in all settings of long-term care. I also uh, work at Stratus Health, where I am the um, chief clinical quality officer um and work on a whole variety of different grants and contracts most of them focused on older adults but because I'm a geriatrician I uh, work a lot on our uh, efforts that are focused in long term care
0: That's wonderful and I'm curious as a medical student myself interest in geriatrics isn't something that I'm hearing from my classmates too frequently so I am curious was there something specifically that inspired you to enter the field Well, as I look back, probably it
2: was my grandmother. Uh, I grew up in a family where my grandmother lived with us. And so I said I sort of started out my life as a caregiver. She was my caregiver, and then I became her caregiver, um, and saw firsthand just the cognitive and physical decline uh, that occurred. Didn't really know Uh, What I was experiencing necessarily at the time, or that it would be an influence on me for the rest of my life. But as I got into healthcare, I did uh, my medical school and then uh, did internal medicine and just found myself really gravitating towards the older adults. And I look back and I said, you know, that really probably was because of my experience with my grandmother and just kind of being comfortable with that population.
0: That's phenomenal, thank you. And I'm curious if you could speak a little bit to your progression throughout school, maybe what your interests were when you first started medical school, or what you were thinking of that, of at that time, and how that changed. Yeah, certainly. I, I cannot
2: tell you that my path was completely direct. I I think what really it was is that I had a lot of I had this underlying um, kind of history. But then along the way, I, I really had a lot of nudges, I would call them. I, like many folks in medical school and residency, you're, you're kind of just taking in so much information. A lot of times you don't necessarily have a lot of time to think about, you know, what do I want to do with all of this when, when I finally move on? But during my residency, I actually was tapped for some reason, and I don't exactly know why they asked me, Uh, maybe because they saw in me that I had an interest in aging to help out uh, because they were short-staffed in uh, working in the nursing home. So got to early on work as part of a physician nurse practitioner team providing primary care in in long-term care. And that's, I think, really where I started to say, you know, I like the people that work in aging. These feel like the people that I want to work with. And that probably was my biggest nudge of all. Uh, I did go back after medical school and residency to do a master's in health services research and policy. And my academic advisor was Dr. Robert Kane, who passed away almost four years ago. Now, but obviously, uh, someone who was influenced the field of aging a lot. So that just really cemented my interest in aging. Um, and then along the way, just, um, all the people I've met in geriatrics, um, like I said, told me that I made the right decision. So I don't know that looking back, I necessarily had a very well thought out plan, but fortunately met a number of good guides along my path.
0: What are some of the characteristics that you've noticed or could pick out specific to the kinds of people that work with aging individuals? I think as
2: I look at my colleagues, when you work in aging, you have to really be interested in the whole person. And unfortunately, in medicine, we have a lot of our tools, resources, guidelines, that are really developed to be single disease and they're very much focused on helping you become certain of a diagnosis. And the folks that are do well in geriatrics, I feel, are the people that are comfortable with a certain level of uncertainty because we aren't just trying to manage the diabetes to make that optimal, or the heart failure to make that optimal, or, um, the arthritis. We're really trying to look at that whole person, and there isn't necessarily a guideline out there that helps you manage multiple chronic conditions. So I think <laughs> the biggest characteristic is being an okay not knowing something. Um, realizing that you work in a bigger team and wanting to be part of a team and being able to turn to your colleagues, whether that be the your physical therapy colleague, whether that may be a nurse practitioner or a PA that you're, you're teamed with, um, whether that be the social worker, of course, the family and the residents, and saying, you know, I don't necessarily know the answer, but together we can figure it out. And I'm okay being the person helping to facilitate that conversation.
0: In your experience, do you think geriatrics is more of a collaborative field than others in healthcare? Or does it align pretty closely with what you've seen in other fields? I think geriatrics is probably
2: one of the foundational collaborative fields. Um, Just because of some of the things that I have said, I don't think it's the only collaborative field, and I think there's a number of uh, fields now that are starting to look to geriatrics. You know, even just primary care in general, really, everybody that, I shouldn't say everybody, but most people that come into a family medicine office or an internist's office, or even uh, our colleagues that are dealing with younger patients, have a lot of folks that have multiple chronic conditions and are having to kind of take the similar approach that we do, where you're looking at this whole person, not just a constellation of conditions. Uh, My husband works in the intensive care unit, and the way he and his colleagues work together is very similar to how we work together in long-term care. Uh, we huddle together as a team. We don't always know the answer. We have to turn to our colleagues um, and we start to realize that we're, we're better together than we are as separate members. So I do think I like geriatrics could maybe take you know the credit for leading the way, uh, but we're certainly not the only collaborative practice out there.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. And it's good to hear that that kind of collaboration exists for a patient population that is so vulnerable. I would love it if you could walk us through what a typical day looks like for you as a geriatrician. So that's probably I can
2: I can maybe walk through in two paths because I do have kind of my I said my feet in two different worlds. For me in my geriatric practice, I have not worked in a clinic setting for years, I uh, work on site. And so when people ask me where my office is, I usually say, well, wherever I have to happen to be sitting at the moment. Um, And so we carry, you know, our equipment with us, we carry our, our laptop with us. And I get to go out and, you know, visit with people in where they live. So my day is not necessarily always very well planned out. I know who I'm seeing, especially in assisted living. Uh, I know who I'm I'm hoping to see that day. But just as all of us, the residents in assisted living, are busy, they're going on with their lives. Um, now in COVID, there aren't as many activities going on, but usually people are going to the hairdresser, they're going to activities, they're going out to lunch. So some of my day is just spent finding the people that I want to see, but then uh, going into their apartments, and uh, they I'm usually welcomed in having a conversation, um, talking about how they're doing talking about what I can do, really to help them continue to do the things that they that mean something to them to really look at what matters to them and how I can help them with that doing some of the you know the typical medicine things checking height <laughs> checking blood pressures listening to hearts listening to lungs doing the things that we do as as clinicians but a lot of it is is really having that conversation about you know what is it that I can really do to help you do the things that you that make a difference for them as a person so that's my my day and then of course the sitting down with my computer and documenting and All the things that the administrative things that are probably similar in whatever setting you're in. I probably spend more of my time talking to families than other clinicians do because in long term care, you often have uh, daughters, sons, spouses, uh, other family members that are really active supporters of that person and actively engaged in their care. So um, probably spend more time kind of having uh, talking to and having a relationship with that group as well in my other world in just aging i work on a number of different grants and contracts and so in that space it's often trying to understand what is it that we can do or what are those interventions that we can support in healthcare settings that make it easier for the clinicians, for the patients to have a better experience with care. What is it that we can be doing to make care safer um, so that when people come into hospitals or into a clinic or any setting that you can avoid adverse events? Um, So it's much more focused on systems and processes. So I, I feel I'm kind of lucky. I get to kind of look at healthcare from from those two perspectives.
0: Absolutely. Are you able to speak a little bit about maybe one of the current grants or policies that you're working on?
2: Oh, let's see. I, probably the biggest one that I work on at Stratus Health is, and because it's a government contract, of course, it has to have a number of acronyms. So uh, I am part of a larger consortium, or our organization's part of a larger consortium, and we work under the umbrella of the Superior Health Quality Alliance. So do this across Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And we serve as the QINQIO, Quality Improvement Organization, Quality Innovation Network. Hopefully I got that right. But one of the things that we're focusing on is adverse drug events. So especially in long-term care, looking across you know, how common do we even really know how to identify an adverse drug event? Um, we know how to identify medication errors, you know, did this person miss their medication, etc. But do we really understand the, the breadth of adverse drug events? And then what are some of those classes of drugs that are particularly um, problematic? Um, such as sliding scale insulin, of course, opioids, antipsychotics, anticoagulants, the the kind of big ones. But then some of the more subtle areas, especially in aging, um, like for example, we're, we often will kind of use the term normalized decline because a lot of our patients that we care for are older and people do decline. And that's pretty common. But we don't have good mechanisms in place to when somebody has a decline to really look back and say ah did that actually coincide with starting a medication cuz sometimes the decline is so is quite slow that we lose that history and our our tools and our electronic records aren't yet at the point where they really can always help us with some of those connections So starting to, I get to do some things like try to tease those type of things out and try to say, so how would we help organizations identify if they had, if a decline wasn't due to an underlying, just underlying aging or condition, um, and it was actually due to a medication we started?
0: Yeah, I can see how that's absolutely critical when treating patients appropriately, I want to bring it back quickly to something you mentioned uh, when you're talking to your patients and how you try to prioritize what they really want and what they want to preserve in their life going forward. I would love it if you could speak a little bit about perhaps your opinion on whether that might be lacking in some areas, some other areas of medicine. And if you think that we could kind of learn from how long-term care and, and end-of-life care processes work.
2: Definitely, I this is one of this is one of my favorite topics. <laughs> I actually think that um, we can all do better at it. It's not. Uh, I don't want to point fingers at any specific area of medicine, but one of the things that I've gotten to be involved in is the four M's: uh, age-friendly health systems. And I don't know how much you've been exposed to that, but IHI and the American Hospital Association, and I think it was the Catholic Healthcare Association, anyway, put together, uh, looked at a, a a big bunch of literature, distilled it all down and said, really, if we focused on four things, the four Ms, we could really improve the experience and and safety for our older adults that are in healthcare, specifically in the hospital, but uh, the four M's don't apply to only that. But the four M's are medications uh, because we do. We as good as a number of our medications are, they also have the potential for a lot of side effects. And that's that's something we really need to pay attention to. Not only what they're doing that's beneficial, but what they're doing that's not beneficial. Uh, mobility, because with older adults, being mobile is a big part of independence. One of the things often we focus on in the safety world in the hospitals is falls. And many of the ways we address falls is to limit people's mobility. Either we put alarms on, we make sure nobody gets up with anybody next, without anyone next to them. But that's really addressing it through limiting mobility. Uh, we need to focus on what it is that maximizes mobility. The other is mentation, um, especially uh, in the hospital setting uh, associated with delirium, huge risk factor for older adults, um, especially those with sensory impairments. But delirium and is, is a big issue. And just in general, what can we do um, with our medications or what can we not do with our medications that will uh continue to help people with mentation and then what matters and i think that's what we were really talking about before at the end of the day what is it that really matters to this person is their real goal to be able to uh be able to you know walk their daughter down their uh, down the aisle next summer at her wedding um and that's what they want to be able to do well, that gives you some guide as to what you really want to do for this person and how you might create a treatment management plan. So I think the four M's are becoming more prevalent and talked about in, in all the healthcare settings. So, uh, thinking back to the original <laughs> question of my long answer, <laughs> um, I, I, I think we can all do better um, there are places that are riskier than others. But I think that, you know, th- fortunately, there's um, some tools and guidance and evidence and more just more discussion about how we can start to address these things.
0: That's wonderful. And I think it's inspirational for our audience to hear because most of us are planning on entering some career in aging. And I think keeping what matters in the front of our minds uh, will be helpful going forward. What would you identify as the most rewarding thing about the work that you do? And then in opposition to that, what is the most challenging aspect?
2: That's a good one. It's rewarding sometimes varies from day to day. Sometimes the days that I feel the best when I get home are the days I just had time to sit and talk with some of my residents especially now uh, with COVID um, because the social isolation in many ways is more detrimental than any of the other, you know, comorbid disease processes that are going on. And being able to just have a conversation and to talk about that and know that when I leave the room, it feels like both the my patient and myself kind of uh, our, our spirits are lifted a little bit <laughs> so that's probably one of the things that is most is most gratifying i also on the flip side of that just by nature am somebody who who loves to design um and i really enjoy looking at how do we deliver care differently when i finished residency, I I spent a a year working at the university and and in general medicine and and the emergency room just because I wasn't sure what I was going to do quite next. Like I say, I did not have a completely direct path. And one of the things that really stood out to me is that, why do we deliver care the way we do? There's so many things that are inefficient. There's so many ways that we just aren't meeting people's needs. And I couldn't put my finger on it. So eventually what led me to get my master's and probably some of the other twists and turns along my career. But I still really enjoy thinking about, okay, how do we, how, how, whether it be, how do I use the tools in front of me differently? How do I implement a new process? How do I design a tool that a nursing home can use I, 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 that's another piece that I, I, I really enjoy. And that's, I think, the fun thing about medicine and healthcare is if we, if you keep your mind open and your options open, you can influence healthcare in a lot of different ways, both as a clinician, but then also just outside of that as well. But you have to step out of your silo to do that.
0: <laughs> Definitely. And that's important to keep in mind. It sounds like some of the more challenging aspects of the work that you encounter is particularly motivating to you as well. Probably. That's true.
2: You know, I think for a lot of clinicians these days, probably some of the biggest challenge is just the administrative burden. You, you know, you're the cohort of folks um, going through training now, Um, all you No, is the electronic health record, and I, I would, I'm never one that would say I want to go back to a paper, (laughs) a paper chart, because there's things that I, I love about the electronic health record, but I feel like we're still stuck in this early messy phase, and it's, it's a tool that is, it's like it's a blunt knife you know it cuts but it doesn't cut very well and so i think it's frustrating for a lot of folks working in the system because it has its really good points but it also can really take up a lot of extra time uh feel like make you feel like there's uh, a lot of your not doing work that you feel is is necessarily Helping in in line what you with, uh, you're not feeling it's not feeling very rewarding at the end of the day. So my hope is is that you know that will like anything that will evolve over time. But i I think that's probably one of the biggest barriers and frustrations, and the thing that hangs over your head the most is just the the documentation and the paperwork and the administrator stuff. It's out. It feels out of balance.
0: <laughs> yeah, it seems like there's always something similar to that in many of the people that I've spoken to about their careers and aging it's always it always comes down to the paperwork <laughs> yeah to bring things to more of a personal level if you're comfortable I'd like to hear about potentially your experiences has your uh work changed how you have either cared for or envision yourself caring for older adults in your own life let's see well I have been in the caregiver role
2: just recently, I uh, 2020 was uh, my husband and I said was probably not a good year for parents in our house. We lost his father at age 95 to a stroke, um, and I lost my mother to COVID. So it was a challenging year, and I definitely learned a lot. I think, especially my experience, because. Um, Just uh, back up just a little bit of history, probably help put this in context. Um, My parents lived independently in a senior living. Uh, My mom had Alzheimer's, but my dad was her main caregiver. My dad passed away at almost 98 a couple years ago. I had caregivers in to help my mom, but with COVID, I could no longer bring the caregivers. So I became the full-time caregiver, going over at least twice a day. Uh, doing personal cares, making meals, time that I would never ever give back because I would not have ever made time to do that level of care for my parent before that occurred. But then as with uh, dementia, um, it's a progressive disease and her dementia progressed to the point that she just wasn't safe to be in that setting. Unfortunately, that was also right about the same time that COVID was peaking. And even though I believe the I made the choice to move her to memory care, and even though I, I do believe they were doing as best as they could as caregivers when COVID is that prevalent in the community, it will eventually make it into your facility. Um, and it did. And my mom got COVID and passed away. So I find that... I felt like I always um, felt like I had a pretty good understanding of what it meant to be uh, to take care of older adults and what, you know, the children of my patients were going through. I have a really, really much better understanding now of all those decisions, and I feel like it has changed, and I don't know if I can put my finger on it, but I feel like that lived experience. Has definitely changed how I have conversations with daughters. Um, it's, it's changed how I have conversations with staff. It's changed how I understand the anxiety that families are feeling that sometimes to us as physicians can just be annoying because we're like, you know, we, we've seen, we've seen this you know, hundreds of times before, but this family is going through it for the first time, um, and I feel like I have much more empathy for that. So I think going through, and I, I, I may have drifted off your your question, but as a geriatrician, that lived experience does does definitely, I think, bring a different perspective to your practice.
0: I'm so sorry to hear about your losses over the past year, and I really appreciate your vulnerability and um, sharing that with us. I think that's really an important perspective for us to hear. As we begin to wrap up our conversation today, um, I'd like to ask you, I know that it's often assumed in the aging population that those individuals have sort of a collective wisdom of experience that we can all learn from. I would love to hear if you have any nuggets of wisdom to pass along that you've heard from an older person. Oh, gosh, I
2: I, I sometimes I've thought I should write a blog or something on this, but I, I don't know that I'm destined to be a blogger. Um, I think one of the ones that stands out to me is that you got to realize that when you're patient, whether, you know, this be an 80-year-old, a 90-year-old, or a 100-year-old, when they look in the mirror, they expect to see an 18-year-old looking back because inside they still are that young person. And we often see them, you know, just at the end or toward the end of their life. But inside, they're, they're, still, they're still young. And so I think I our society is very ageist, which is such a hurtful thing, because as with, you know, systemic racism, systemic ageism is also uh, oppression. Um, and so I think that's probably one of the things. It's not necessarily a, as, it's not a cute story. It is in the fact that, you know, I do have, People who say, I look in the mirror and I don't know who that person is looking back at me. (laughs) And it's not because of cognitive impairment. It's because they really are expecting to see their 18 year old self looking back because they're not sure where all the years have gone. I think one of the the things is uh, when I asked a patient of mine who just she just recently passed at 102 when you would ask her, you know, what's your secret? Well, I never missed a dance. And I think that's probably also kind of filters through a lot of the advice that I get from the folks that, you know, seem to be either making it through, you know, the aging process or, you know, thriving in the aging process is it's that, you know, keeping that attitude of having fun, being able to smile, being able to joke, continuing to do that. And so it's kind of that I've always said, well, I'm just I'm not going to miss a dance. And that's probably good advice. (laughs) So I I know when we're done here, I'm going to have about a 100 of these come flow, flowing back to me. Um.
0: (laughs) That's okay. I love your answer. Um, That's perfect. And I think that wraps up our conversation here on the Voices of Aging. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Peterson. Okay, bye-bye.
1: This podcast is brought to you by ASIC, the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. We are a collaborative networking group for students studying aging across the university. Stay tuned for the next episodes of Voices of Aging, where you learn more about aging through experts.